0: I'd invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to the book of Esther in the Old Testament, uh, chapters 8 through 10. We'll be finishing our study of this book um, today. Uh, We've been looking at these uh, five little scrolls in our summer series. If you are new today and visiting with us, I just want to let you know where we are at Normally in the fall, as we start a new year of ministry like this, I like to do kind of a big-picture message. Well, those are still coming. Uh, Next week, I'm going to be talking about our own personal walk with Christ and the life that you've always wanted, the kind of life that God intends for us as we walk with Him. And then the uh, two weeks from today, I'm going to be talking about a big-picture message related to the church and a vision for the future of Lakes Free and what is it that God desires for us. And then this year, coming up, we're going to be studying the book of Romans, a rich study and one of the great epistles in the New Testament, and so I'm looking forward to that as well. But that gives you an idea of where we are headed in the future, but today we're going to be looking at the book of Esther, finishing up this series, talking about how God is at work behind the scenes of history. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the instruction that it gives and how relevant it is to our life too. And we see in it the examples of men and women of faith who wrestled with their life circumstances, who had to listen to your Holy Spirit just as we do, who trusted you to guide them just as we must trust you, and who stepped out in faith and honored you by their courage and by their convictions. And Father, I pray that we would be those kind of individuals in our world, that whatever our circumstances are, that we would be men and women of faith who look to you for guidance each day and who stand with courage and conviction for the things that you teach. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, the Bible tells us that our God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And when you see a verse like that and you look at it, he is saying that God works out everything, not just a few things, but all things, in conformity with the purpose of his will. God isn't just concerned about the big things going on in our world, he's concerned about the little things, if you will, too. And all of that is under his sovereign will and plan. The Bible tells us that history is moving toward a goal. The return of Jesus Christ and the day when he will establish his kingdom upon the earth. The day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That that day is coming and history is moving toward that goal. And nothing, nothing can thwart God's purposes or his plans. Theologians refer to this as God's providence. And God's providence includes three things. Number one, God's providence is how God sustains the universe and all life within it. And God upholds everything by His might and power. In Hebrews 1.3, the Bible says that the Son of God, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustains all things by His powerful Word. What the Bible is saying is that all life on this planet exists only because of his power. If there ever was a moment when God turned his attention away, or sort of dropped the ball, if you will, we would all perish. But God is the one who sustains this world, this universe, and our very life, all by his providence. Secondly, God is at work in every human action. There are choices and decisions that we make every day and that people all over this planet make. And we are free moral beings in one sense in which we can make these choices and we are accountable for the choices that we make. And yet the Bible says that God is in all of that too. That's why, for example, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and brought down to Egypt and ended up in this horrible situation for a time, it's why Joseph could say to his brothers that you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good to preserve many people alive as God used those circumstances and turned it around to preserve a nation. It's also why in the New Testament, those early believers, when they were experiencing persecution and they were suffering under that, could come and they could pray with confidence and boldness. And in their prayer concerning what Herod and Pontius Pilate and those who had put Jesus to death said, they prayed and they said, God, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They understood that there were limits to evil, that these men could do no more than God would allow. And all of it was under his sovereign plan. God's providence also means, again, that history is moving toward a planned end, the return of Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer illustrated it like this, and again, all illustrations can kind of break down at some point, but perhaps this would be helpful. He said, it's like all of us are on a great ocean liner. And on that ocean liner, there's a sense in which we are free to move about the cabin. You know, we can kind of go where we want to go. But that ocean liner is headed toward a destination. And so is this world. This world is headed toward the day when Jesus Christ is going to return. And He is indeed Lord of all. Now, what we do is important in this life. The choices that we make... And what we'll see in the book of Esther, for example, is an illustration of how God's providence intersects with human lives. Well, First of all, in chapter 8, we see how God is sovereign over rulers and leaders. I'd like to read verses 1 to 4. In chapter 8, picking up the story, it says, "...that same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews." And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, and she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. This great reversal that we talked about last Sunday, a reversal that began in chapter 6 with Haman, the enemy of the Jews, falling out of favor and actually being executed. And Mordecai, this man who had been despised by Haman, was now exalted. In fact, in this passage, what we see is that uh, Uh, Mordecai is raised up to this position of influence in the kingdom. He becomes the new prime minister, if you will, of the Persian Empire. And the king who had uh, previously had Haman in that position has now recovered this signet ring from Haman and given it to Mordecai. In other words, he has the authority to write and carry out the laws of the king. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, was executed as a traitor to the throne. And according to Persian law, the property of a traitor went back to the king, and the king could dispose of it however he wanted. And since Esther was the offended party, that property went to Esther as queen, and then Esther in turn appoints Mordecai, her cousin, the man who had saved the king's life five years earlier as the one who will oversee that property. And so in this great reversal of things, Mordecai is given both the position and the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. It is an amazing turn of events. And there are times, again, when skeptics will look at a book like this and they'll go, you know, that sounds like a pretty good story, but that's just a little bit too neat. What's interesting is how God gives us evidence of that, even in extra-biblical materials. A number of years ago, there was a cuneiform tablet discovered by archaeologists in Persia. And it's from the time period of King Xerxes, the king in this story. And in that tablet, it identified as a high official in his court in the early part of his reign, a man named Mardukai in Persian, or Mordecai, as the Bible talks about here. There are those kind of evidences that God gives every now and then in history and archaeology that fit in with the biblical story that are just so amazing and give us confidence in our faith. You see, Xerxes may have thought he was in control of his empire, but God was at work behind the scenes of history to accomplish his purposes. And that encourages me and that should encourage you too when we think about what's going on in our world and the changing circumstances in which we find ourselves. And there are times when I'm sure all of us ask questions, you know, about I wonder why God's doing that. Or I wonder why, you know, He allows this person or this uh, king or ruler who may be more of a tyrant to be in power longer than we would like. Why has God arranged the world in which it is uh, in such a way that so much attention is still upon the Middle East and what's happening there? It should give us confidence even in the election of our own leaders in government here. In Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says that no one from the east or from the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges, and He brings one down and He exalts another. God is the one who promotes or raises up leaders or removes them from office. And we have an election coming up, you know, and I think it's going to be a very interesting two months as we listen to these candidates that are running for president and uh, vice presidential nominees. And uh, the news people have been saying, you know, there's four very interesting storylines here about these people. I mean, you have Joe Biden, a son of immigrants and grew up in kind of a blue-collar background. You have, you know, uh, the first African-American running for president here. You have a genuine war hero from the Vietnam era and John McCain. And you have a woman vice presidential nominee who calls herself a a hockey mom. You know, and you have all of these kind of storylines that are playing in and four people who I think really do desire the best for our country different visions, but desiring the very best for our country. And when it comes to that election, each of us are going to vote, our conscience, and people are going to do that all over America and making those individual choices. But God is in all of that too. And God is the one who raises up leaders for a point in history according to His purposes. And that gives me tremendous confidence when I think about our nation And it also stresses to me and to us the importance of prayer in all of this. I mean, the prayer that God always answers is the prayer for His will to be done. For He to govern in the affairs of our nation according to His purposes. You know, when I look at this passage too, I see how God is sovereign over peoples and nations. The situation has changed for Esther and Mordecai. Their situation now is on good footing, but not for the Jewish people yet. They are still under a sentence of death that Haman had instituted and brought about and the king had signed. And so there is still this threat for the Jewish people all over the Persian Empire that on such and such day their enemies have the right to put them to death and to take their property. And the king reminds them that the orders of a king are irrevocable. So the only solution is to write another decree that will counteract the first one with equal force. And that's what Xerxes instructs Mordecai to do. Listen to how it goes, beginning in verse 5. If it pleases the king, Esther said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let another order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther. And they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you. And seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. And they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to all the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. These orders were written in the script of each province, in the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. And Mordecai rode in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. And the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them, and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. I'll stop there. This law is written, giving the Jews the right to defend themselves and to protect their property. And what happens here is that there is a turn of events and a turn of circumstances that takes place. Haman, who issued the first order, is now gone, executed by the king. Mordecai is now prime minister, the new person in charge. And so throughout the whole kingdom, because favor has been shown to Mordecai, the fear of Mordecai comes upon the people, and it's the first law that is ignored, and it's the second law that is supported by the people in the empire. And when the day comes... The Jews are able to defend themselves against those who had sought their death. In the city of Susa, 500 are put to death. Throughout the empire, 75,000, including the ten sons of Haman, who were also put to death. It is a remarkable change that took place as God delivered his people. Now, I know as New Testament believers that sometimes these passages are difficult for us to read when we come to the Old Testament. There are passages in the Old Testament where we see how God ordered the death or destruction of certain people groups, certain tribes, certain nations that stood in opposition to God. And sometimes that's hard for us. I I read those passages and I think about in terms of apologetics and defending our faith that there are times when uh, people will question that and go, well, what's that all about? I mean, how is that any different from ethnic cleansing or genocide in our world. What's going on here? And I want to share with you this morning something that's maybe a difficult concept, but something that may help you in reading your Old Testament and in understanding what is going on here. One of the reasons we have trouble with this is that we don't understand the Old Testament concept of what was called a holy war. You'll still hear that term on occasion as you'll hear it out of the Islamic world where You know, Osama bin Laden declared a holy war on the United States. Or Saddam Hussein, when he was in power, declared a holy war on the United States. And we hear that and we go, what's that about? In Arabic, it's the word jihad. And we don't talk like that. We don't think like that anymore in our concept of the world. But back then, they did. And in the Old Testament, the concept of holy war wasn't about Israel defeating her enemies because they were better or morally superior to her enemies the Jews weren't always Israel wasn't always following God and that's why there were times when God fought for Israel when they were walking with him and there were times when God fought against Israel that's why he brought upon them the hand of the Assyrians or the Babylonians in judgment at times in their history The concept of holy war in the Old Testament is about God warring against sin and evil on this earth. And since Israel was the nation through whom God had chosen to bring His Son, God was very concerned about their preservation. And there were times in Israel's history, like with Hezekiah, where the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, where the nation of Israel was reduced to the size of about a postage stamp, And God preserved them because he was preserving the line of Christ. And there were times when they were carried into captivity and they were here as in the Persian Empire. And the enemy of the Jews wanted to destroy all of them. And God preserved them because of the line of Christ. But this concept of the Holy War illustrates how God hates sin. And He wants to remove it from our world. And we would like Him in one sense to destroy the sin and the evil, but leave the people alone. But the problem is that sin is in us too. And just like the Jews who were living in Persia, we were under a sentence of death that was irrevocable. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. That is the punishment for our disobedience against the Holy God. And that law is irrevocable. God couldn't just rescind that law, just like the king of Persia couldn't just rescind the law that had been sent out. Instead, what God did? God issued a counter-decree of life. It is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Romans tells us that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. This counter-law, this decree of life had the ability to save, to bring forgiveness, to give life to all who would believe in Him. It is John 3.16 in a nutshell. When God said, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And when Jesus came into this world, He came as our Messiah, He came as our Savior, He came as our Redeemer, but He also came as the divine warrior. He came as that divine warrior who struck that final blow against sin and death and Satan at the cross of Jesus Christ and by his death and resurrection he triumphed over his enemies and he has won the victory and because of what he has done holy war has ceased because Christ has won the victory the only nations that still talk about a holy war if you will are those that do not believe in Jesus Christ it was those places that have rejected Him. Instead, as New Testament believers, we are commanded to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We are called to forgive others just as Christ has forgiven us. Now, that doesn't mean that governments or states should not defend their people against terrorism or criminals or war. They should and must. But what it means for us as individual Christians and as a church is that our mission It's to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Our mission is to help fulfill the Great Commission in our generation. That's our calling. And that is why God has left us in this world to be a part of what He is doing. Well, thirdly, what we see in a passage like this is that God is not only sovereign over rulers and leaders, and He's not only sovereign over nations and peoples, He is sovereign over our life the book of Esther will end with a a celebration and a call to remember what God had done and Purim is instituted among the Jews as a day of joy and feasting to remember this victory in chapter 9 verse 23 and following the scripture says this that the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them for Haman, son of Hammedatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast the pur, that's the Persian word for lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore these days were called Purim from the word pur because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them the jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed and that these days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. It was a day to remember and thank God for what he had done. You know, I like that. I think days of remembrance are good. I think it's important for us to remember those events and things that God has done in our life too. You see, God is intimately concerned about what happens to us. He has a plan for our life, and He wants us to know that. And the way that we find that out is by surrendering our hearts to Him and allowing His Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. We find out God's will by studying the Scriptures and looking at what He has given to us there. And what we find in the Scriptures is that God is at work behind the scenes in our life too. Psalm 139 reminds us of how intimately He cares about us. He knows our thoughts and our words. He knows our walk and our ways. He knows our form, how we are made, and He knows the length of our days. In fact, Psalm 139, verse 16 says that He knows all of our days. All of our days were ordained for us before one of them came to be. It is amazing how intimately God cares for us. And in the year coming up, I want to encourage you to get to know Him better. We are here as a church to help you grow in your relationship with Christ and to understand His will for your life. We want to encourage you to be involved in ministry and service as well as in study opportunities too. And there are a number of those that we've talked about as we start this year. But as we come to the end of this book, we are reminded of how good God is. He is a God who gives wisdom and guidance. He's a God who preserves and protects and provides for his people. God is at work behind the scenes of history. We can trust him. We are to walk with him. And we are to worship him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the same God who was at work in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people several thousand years ago. You are still active and at work in our world, and I thank you for that. Father, help us to keep our eyes open to see how you are doing that in our own life, to find out where you are working all around us and to join with you in that work, to honor you by our words and by our deeds. And I pray for each one who's here this morning that you would show us exactly what it is that you want us to do as we think about ministry and service and opportunities in the year ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.